Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Entheogenic Esotericism by Dr. Wouter J. Hanegraaff. The title of this chapter was not chosen lightly. It brings two highly controversial terms together in a novel combination and, in so doing, attempts to call attention to a specific phenomenon in contemporary religion, namely the religious use of psychoactive substances as means of access to spiritual insights about the true nature of reality. The question of why and in what sense this type of religion should be understood as a form of esotericism will be addressed below. But something must be said at the outset about the adjective entheogenic and its implications. The substantive entheogen was coined in 1979 by a group of ethnobotanists and scholars of mythology who were concerned with finding a terminology that would acknowledge the ritual use of psychoactive plants reported from a variety of traditional religious contexts while avoiding the questionable meanings and connotations of current terms notably hallucinogens and psychedelics. As suggested by its roots in Greek etymology, entheos, natural or artificial substances can be called entheogens, adjective entheogenic, if they generate or bring about unusual states of consciousness in which those who use them are believed to be filled, possessed, or inspired by some kind of divine entity, presence, or force. Note on the rich vocabulary for such states of consciousness in classic antiquity, see exhaustive overview in Pfister, Ecstasy. Sounds like a good book. While the altered states in question are pharmacologically induced, such religious interpretations of them are obviously products of culture. We know this more than now, more than ever today, with the uh, scrapings from the altars in ancient Israel. Of course, it's been predicted and talked about for a long time, just marginalized and redacted. Although the terms entheogen and entheogenic were invented with specific reference to the religious use of psychoactive substances, 
It is important to point out, although this broadens current understandings of the term, that the notion of entheogenic religion, if taken literally, does not strictly imply such substances. After all, there are many other factors that may trigger or facilitate a state of entheosiasmos, in Greek, enthusiasm, such as specific breathing techniques, rhythmic drumming, ritual prayer and incantations, meditation, and so on. This was already the case in antiquity and remains so today. It will therefore be useful to distinguish between entheogenic religion in a narrow and in a wide sense. With respect to the wider category, one could think of such cases as the ritual practices known as theurgy, described, for instance, by the 3rd, 4th century Neoplatonic philosopher Iamblichus. The complicated techniques, known as ecstatic Kabbalah, developed by the Jewish mystic Abraham Abulafia in the 13th century, or even the experience of being filled by the Holy Spirit in contemporary Pentecostalism. <clears throat> Though saying that's from contemporary Pentecostalism actually ignores the entire history of Christian worship practices, especially their early uh, church ones. <laughs> I'm being filled with the Holy Spirit and is something I think you would find very common in the early Gnostic practices as well as mainstream early 1st and 2nd century Christian practices. Um, the Pentecost uh, story and acts of the apostles pretty clearly defines a form of ecstatic worship that was, whether coming from the Essenes or other ecstatic religious cults teaching out of Egypt and that area, there was just so much variety of spiritual and religious practice back in those days. Um, it's it's so, so tempting to uh, narrowly define how things were then in, in very specific ways and say, oh, but today there's this plethora of practice and information, all these, you know, 21,000 flavors, and back then there was just these couple things fighting it out. That's just because we have limited access to what knowledge uh, and practices and cults were going on back then. We don't even know about the, where the actual origins of Gnostics really came from. Not really. Was it a trend that permeated several groups, or was it something that had a distinct origin and we just, those texts were all burnt because the Christians did a really good job burning those texts. So to say that being filled with the Holy Spirit is a comes out a, to draw. I don't know why he's drawing a, a connection to contemporary Pentecostalism. That seems like a very um, narrowing of the view for something that's meant to be broader based. Also, I think Abraham Abulafia didn't invent ecstatic Kabbalah, um, but who knows? His overall point here is great. The historical evidence in Western culture for entheogenic religion in a narrow sense, that is, involving the use of psychoactive substances, is a contentious issue, to say the least, and discussing it seriously would require a book-length treatment. But in order to establish that we are not pursuing a chimera, it suffices, for now, to point out that the existence of such kinds of religion in indigenous cultures is well documented, particularly in the Latin American context. The present chapter will fo focus exclusively on one particular trend of contemporary entheogenic religion, in a narrow sense, which may be defined as a form of Western esotericism and has not yet received the attention it deserves. And that point is excellent. Entheogens and Religion, Conceptual Pitfalls and Prejudices That entheogens might have a legitimate place in religion at all is controversial among scholars. 
but for reasons that have less to do with factual evidence than with certain ingrained prejudices rooted in Western intellectual culture. Firstly, on the crypto-Protestant assumption that religion implies an attitude in which human beings are dependent on the divine initiative to receive grace or salvation, the use of entheogens is bound to suggest a magical, and therefore not truly religious, attitude in which human beings themselves dare to take the initiative and claim to have the key of access to divinity. So here we see a combination of things at play. We see um, the blurring or the lack of the the separation, the artificial separation of magic from religion, which occurred throughout the Enlightenment. And we also see the uh, contentious issue with uh, Gnosticism and direct ideas of connection with God, which again is a very Western Roman Catholic uh, problem that came about as uh, requiring Jesus to be the mediator between God and the Holy Spirit in the filioque controversy, which was a part of the uh, major schism a thousand years ago between the Eastern Orthodoxies and the Roman Church. The Roman Church, of course, wants us to not have access to God or the Holy Spirit without Christ as a mediator because it plays a modular role of then having to require the Roman Catholic Church as a mediator and the Pope. And the Pope was just, as we all know, a very big deal to the Roman Catholic power struggle against the rest of the bishops of Christianity, especially Eastern Orthodox ones. Such a distinction in which the former option is coded positively and the latter negatively makes intuitive sense to us because modern intellectual culture since the Enlightenment has internalized specific Protestant assumptions to an extent where they appear wholly natural and obvious. In Clifford Geertz's famous formulation, the dominant symbolic system clothes them with such an aura of factuality that the moods and motivations connected to them seem uniquely realistic. That's Geertz's religion as a cultural system. These assumptions are, however, culture-specific and highly problematic. The underlying opposition of religion versus magic, along with science, as reified universals, has been thoroughly deconstructed in recent decades. That's what I was talking about. As artificial and ethnocentric to the core. It depends on normative modernist ideologies and implicit hegemonic claims of Western superiority that are rooted in heresiological... I've actually not seen that as an expert in heresy. That's a strange thing. Heresiological. Why have I never used that word? Oh, I love Hanegraaff. Missionary and colonialist mentalities, but cannot claim universal or even scholarly validity. Yeah, so this is well known to actual scholars in intellectual history and religion and all that stuff. But I know that's not well known for a lot of people. So keep in mind, yes, the, uh, there's a very artificial division between uh, religion and magic. It came throughout the Re- Counter Reformation and the uh, Enlightenment, and then up to through through modernism. Yeah, and we see that play out into the uh, even into the the war on drugs and the illegalization of cannabis farming back in the day in America. That that is, is what leads us all eventually to having scholars and academics have a, a automatic reactionary rejection to entheogenic study, or the role that it could have had any play role in human history. I mean, the last article I covered says that there was no use of mushrooms, psilocybin, ever before like 60, 70 years ago. He actually says that. He says even and he's an ardent scholar 
and PhD and user of them, but he's like, you know, they were they just weren't known. No one had them. No, the the people of Donegal, Ireland, weren't picking psilocybin mushrooms throughout all of history and entering into the she. That certainly never happened. We only discovered that shit in the fifties. Yep, John D and Edward Kelly weren't popping them in the towering in Prague. Nope, no, they just grew them there for fun because they looked pretty. Ultimately, based upon the theological battle against paganism the magic versus religion assumption, yep, including its manipulative versus receptive connotations, is a distorting mirror that fails to account for the complexity of beliefs and practices on both sides of the conceptual divide. For, see a detailed discussion of this in the Honograph, Esotericism and the Academy, which if you are into that sort of thing, is an awesome read. He talks about that in Chapter 3. <clears throat> um, another really good point that comes up here is when we look back on history and uh, culture, especially religion, um, it's very common for us to really lump things together in large categories and large groupings. That's just something you see when you really study history and the history of ideas. You see that, that today people generally have very general conglomerations of how things were at this time or with this group. But the, 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 the variety was always far more vast than we would like to simply categorize it, which, again, did come out of the modernist and structuralist movements. So one of the boons of, of post-structuralism was the resurgence and resuscitation of the <laughs> simple acknowledgement that there was a lot of variety in human history as much as there is today, because you can't say that there's only a couple kinds of Christians today or a couple kinds of politicians or a couple kinds of doctors. No, there's fuckloads. There's tons. Damn, now I need an explicit rating. There's tons, and there always was. There's lots of, lots of variety, always has been lots of variety. A second cause of controversy has to do with certain idealist frameworks or assumptions that seem so natural to Western scholars that they are seldom reflected upon. Religion is generally supposed to be about spiritual realities, not material ones, and therefore the claim that modifying brain activity by chemical means might be a religious pursuit seems counterintuitive. Mm, that's a, I disagree with Honograph there because religion is generally supposed to be about spiritual realities. Religion is sort of a purveyor of spirituality. It is like a caretaker of it in its best form, but not material ones. Lots of religions are material-based. Um, you could even argue that Judaism is extremely material-based. Original Christianity didn't believe in the immortality of any kind of soul or or. or spiritual side of a human being that went to heaven. Original Christianity didn't believe in the immortality of the soul at all. It believed in the resurrection of the body, the physical body, like zombies. That is how original Christianity believed. <clears throat> so there was lots of religions that cared about material reality and saw spiritual and material reality as one as science is sort of starting to uh, consider these days. So that's that's just, you know, but generally speaking, it's right. It comes across as a purely technical and quasi-materialistic trick, the psychedelics that is, that cheats practitioners into believing they are having a genuine religious experience. Yeah, there is this dualistic idea that if it's, um, and Stenwick in his Anakian lessons with Newcomb were talking about, was talking about, it was very anti-psychedelic, uh, um, as opposed to Leach who says, accurately that it's always been a part of it 
So the separating of matter from spirit in a dualism saying anything that has to do with matter, like entheogens, therefore is not related to spirit and has no connection with it is a dualistic um, belief that fits really well into Gnosticism, which believes the world is evil and spirit is good. So um, in general, that is. <clears throat> yeah, so the idea that genuine religious experience must be purely spiritual. What does purely spiritual mean? It, it's a question of what the matter is. What is matter? And that's that's where I love Penrose, who uh, says he doesn't like being called materialist because we don't yet know what the matter is. I love it. However, such objections are extremely problematic. First, they wrongly assume that there are scholarly procedures for distinguishing genuine from fake religion. Nice. Second, they ignore the fact that any activity associated with mind or spirit is inseparable from neurological activity and brain chemistry. Great. In our experience as human beings, we know of no such thing as pure spiritual activity, or, for that matter, any other mental activity, unconnected with the body and the brain. If it did exist, we would be incapable of experiencing its effects. Excellent. Uh, note, some critics might point out point to out-of-body experiences as counter-evidence, but any account of such experiences communicated to us after the fact, that is, after the subject has purportedly returned to his or her body. Therefore, all we have is memories in the minds of embodied persons, indirectly communicated to us in the form of verbal accounts. Exactly. It's all mediated through language and brain and chemicals in our brain and all that stuff. Plus, memories might be spirit. I mean, Go read some Ari Bergson again. That's what we talked about last time. I know it's been a while, but shit's crazy here. Since all forms of experience, including experiences deemed religious, are bodily phenomena by definition, it is arbitrary to exclude entheogenic religion merely because of the particular method it uses to influence the brain. Wunderbar. A final cause of controversy is, of course, the well-known rhetoric employed in the war on drugs. Now, I was jumping ahead way early on this one. Hey, I just like, boom, I'm uh, too much coffee maybe this morning. Nah, never enough coffee, right, glitch bottle? War on drugs since the end of the 1960s. Here, the polemical use of reified universal categories is once again decisive. Rather than carefully differentiating between the enormous variety of psychoactive substances and their effects, the monolithic category of drugs suggests that all of them are dangerous and addictive. Although the medical and pharmacological evidence does not support this assumption, politics and the media have been singularly successful in promoting the reified category. Um, for some people, reified is, is a word academics use a lot. It, it means like, it's sort of like saying the ua something, the archetypal, the, the, it has platonic being. It is a thing that cannot be changed. It has an essence that is real and therefore reified category is a category that cannot be debated and is actually really real as opposed to something constructed by human beings with our brains and thoughts. And as a result, the notion that entheogens might have a normal and legitimate function in some religious context is bound to sound bizarre to the general public. Scholars who insist on differentiating between different kinds of drugs, pointing out that some of them are harmless and might even be beneficial, 
therefore find themselves in a defensive position by default. It is always easy for critics to suggest that their scholarly arguments are just a front for some personal agenda of pro-psychedelic apologetics. And apologetics, of course, means explanations. Is, um, that's what it is, not apologies for, again, the lay listener. Um, yeah, that's a common accusation lobbed at academics who want to study these things because, as we all know, marijuana is a dangerous, addictive killer drug and caffeine and Vicodin are healthy and safe. The bottom line is that, for all these reasons, the very notion of entheogenic religion is a category in scholarly research finds itself at a strategic disadvantage from the outset. It is simply very difficult for us to look at the relevant religious beliefs and practices from a neutral and non-judgmental point of view. For in the very act of being observed, that is, even prior to any conscious attempt on our part to apply any theoretical perspective, they already appear to us as pre-categorized in the terms of our own cultural conditioning. Almost inevitably, they are perceived as pertaining to a negative wastebasket category of otherness associated with a strange assortment of magical, pagan, superstitious, or irrational beliefs. And as such, they are automatically seen as different from genuine or serious forms of religion. The drugs category further causes them to be associated with hedonistic, manipulative, irresponsible, or downright criminal attitudes, so that claims of religious legitimacy are weakened even further. In this chapter, an attempt will nevertheless be made to treat entheogenic esotericism as just another form of contemporary religion that requires our serious attention. Again, this is all from a little while ago before the altar scrapings and... uh, you know, the slow acceptance that, you know, the high priests of ancient Judea were probably huffing DMT fumes to talk to God, if not, you know, maybe just cannabis, but maybe a bunch of different things. A first reason for doing so is strictly empirical. If it is true that entheogenic esotericism happens to exist as a significant development in post-World War II religion and in contemporary society, then it is simply our business as scholars to investigate it. A second reason is more theoretical in nature. Both the esoteric and the entheogenic dimension of this topic challenges some of our most deeply ingrained assumptions about religion and rationality. And studying their combination may therefore be particularly helpful in making us aware of our blind spots as intellectuals and scholars. A good note on this is see an example of the clinical research presented in a special issue of Ayahuasca Use in Cross-Cultural Perspective, Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, 2005. Um, Obviously and confusingly, the harmless or even beneficial category is often referred to by the same term drugs, as in prescription drugs. That substances such as ayahuasca could be understood as drugs in such a sense is widely experienced as counterintuitive because of its hallucinogenic properties associated with the recreational or hedonistic practices of tripping. But that such properties are incompatible with beneficial medical or psychiatric effects is a a priori assumption rather than an established fact. I know a lot of the people listening to this, this is like preaching the choir, but... um, not necessarily, and we're going to get into some very detailed points later on when we start talking about Terence McKenna. So there is a live and well esoteric practices and religions, essentially, um, using entheogens as sacrament and aids to spiritual and magical work. 
entheogens and the New Age. The wider context in which entheogenic esotericism has appeared is usually referred to as the New Age. In my 1996 study, New Age Religion and Western Culture, Esotericism in the Mirror of Secular Thought, I wrote the following. One of the most characteristic elements of the counterculture was the widespread use of psychedelic drugs. It has often been noted that most of the new religious movements which enjoyed their heyday in the wake of the counterculture, late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, Honograph, of course, omits the any reference to the beats, beatniks of the 1950s. Yeah, they weren't counterculture at all, though some say they were the seeds. That's all right. Strongly discouraged or flatly forbade the use of drugs. Instead, they emphasized meditation and other spiritual techniques as alternative means of expanding consciousness. This same approach has become typical for our New Age movement of the 1980s, which no longer dis- encourages the use of psychedelic drugs as part of its religious practices. I just don't think that's true at all, but uh, it discourages the use. I mean, there was a heavy discouragement for me in the 1990s of the New Age and my family in the 80s in the Maharishi movement. They were completely anti-drugs in every way, shape, and form. Um, Unless it came to pills, of course, that's fine. Pills are fine. Not, and I don't mean recreational pills. (laughs) Though that's how they get used, isn't it? as every grade schooler knows these days. Rereading this passage 15 years later, I must confess that I find it rather naive. Good. Okay, good, yeah. Well, of course, he wrote it in 96. Yeah, he's a good scholar. In my book, I analyze the beliefs and ideas of the New Age on the basis of a representative sample of primary sources and found almost no evidence for the relevance of psychedelics. However, I should have been more sensitive to the social and discursive necessity for New Age authors to be discreet or secretive about their role that psychedelics might have played in their life and work. Yes, yeah, he wasn't considering how, uh, how shush we must have, we, they, people might have been. Particularly after LSD and other psychedelic substances were criminalized during the second half of the 1960s. A good example is the famous case of Fritsch. Fritjof Capra, his bestseller, The Tao of Physics, begins with an often quoted description of the experience that had set him on the course towards writing his book. Capra described how, one late summer afternoon in 1969, he was sitting by the ocean and suddenly became aware of his whole environment as being engaged in a gigantic cosmic dance. Quote, I saw cascades of energy coming down from outer space in which particles were created and destroyed in rhythmic pulses. I saw the atoms of the elements and those of my body participating in this cosmic dance of energy. I felt its rhythm and I heard its sound. That's like in the Hebrew Bible. And at the moment I knew that this was the dance of Shiva, the Lord of dancers worshipped by the Hindus. That's Capra, the Tao of Physics. Capra may have found it preferable to have his readers assume that this experience happened to him just like that. But the description is of such a nature that, especially coming from the pen of a typical representative of the hippie generation, we may safely assume that it occurred under the influence of LSD or some other psychedelic substance. No shit, eh? That said, I've had tons of experiences like that um, after, during my 15 years of nonstop hermetic ritual work prior to me ever sampling a single drug or drink in my life. So you can do it both ways. Note that Capra does not mention LSD, but does refer to the powerful impact of his experiences with unspecified power plants. 
Yeah, the fact that uh, Hanegraaff didn't consider that, he uh, it's really cool that he notices that he was naive when he drew those uh, conclusions from his 80s studies and 90s publication. Um, it's a little shocking because given that he's the head of the Department for the Study of Hermeticism at the University of Amsterdam, given his knowledge and familiarity with alchemical symbolism and language, how did he also not see that that was what that was also being used for throughout history. I mean, the idea that this Capra was veiling his references to psychedelic experiences, as were many people in the 80s and 90s, but that spiritual practitioners weren't using alchemical language, the green language, the language of the birds, in the same way throughout that entire period of the Counter-Reformation and the Enlightenment, and even before that, is, is also very naive. Um, and looking at the Hebrew Bible, when when the, the Israelites, when they saw the sound, like you know, and burning bushes and acacia leaves and you know, THC and all this stuff, yeah, we're unredacting history, folks. One one step at a t- at a time. It's going to be hard, and well, while we still have the universities being run by baby boomers and baby boomers and older Gen Xers of my gen, anyway. Moving on, I'm in a hypercritical mood today, but that's because life has been real nightmarish around here. Hard to handle. It revealed to Capra that spirit and matter were not radically separate, and eventually led him to explore the parallels and mutual interpenetration of modern physics and Eastern mysticism. Good. Yeah, the uh, the separation of matter and spirit is uh, the greatest uh, reason why a lot of Christians at wanted Gnosticism to be heretical because they wanted to uh, see nature as godly. Original Christianity had very strong theologians that wanted to see nature as being interpenetrated with the Spirit of God, and Gnostics wanted uh, nature to be evil um, and sinful. That is something that a lot of people who love Gnosticism, including myself, have had a hard time with, but it is a factor of many of the Gnostic movements. Because again, there wasn't one, there was many. Tons of flavors of ice cream, as always. That's a big reason why um, structuralists, and I'm more of a structuralist than a post-structuralist, in fact, um, talk in terms often of, structuralists often talk in terms of categories, whereas post-structuralists often um, have evolved into looking at trends. Um, That's more useful than looking at categories as fixed platonic solids that we either are members of or not members of. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm speaking in several different ways at once here, but you can handle it. In going through my sample of New Age sources, I came across countless other descriptions of impressive, mystical, or visionary experiences. Many authors described them as crucial turning points in their spiritual development and emphasized, like Capra, that they had provided them with essential knowledge about the true nature of reality. The case of Jane Roberts, author of the best-selling Seth books, and arguably the most influential source of basic New Age metaphysics, which is a ridiculous term, New Age metaphysics. There's nothing spiritual about metaphysics, really. It's a question of reality or matter or what is. But it's been co-opted by the New Age, of course, to mean spirituality or spirit in, in most cases. Again, I'm being a little loose there, but check it out and you'll see him right. Maybe... Uh, Maybe here is one of the representatives. According to her own account, published in 1970, her first exposure to spiritual reality occurred out of the blue on an 
the afternoon of 9th September 1963, when she was quietly sitting at the dinner table. Quote, Between one normal minute and the next, a fantastic avalanche of radical new ideas burst into my head with tremendous force, as if my skull were some sort of receiving station, turned up to unbearable volume. Not only ideas came through this channel, but sensations intensified and pulsating. It was as if the physical world were suddenly tissue paper thin, hiding infinite dimensions of reality, and I was suddenly flung through the tissue paper with a huge ripping sound. My body sat at the table, my hands furiously scribbling down the words and ideas that flashed through my head. Yet I seemed to be somewhere else at the same time, traveling through things. I went plummeting through a leaf to find a whole universe open up, and then out again drawn into new perspectives. I felt as if knowledge was being implanted in the very cells of my body so that I couldn't forget it, a gut-knowing, a biological spirituality. It was feeling and knowing rather than intellectual knowledge. When I came to, I found myself scrawling what was obviously meant as the title of that odd batch of notes, The Physical Universe as Idea Construction. Later, the Seth material would develop those ideas, but I didn't know that at the time. I think a lot of the times, uh, experiences like that, of which I've been having since I was a very, very young, these what people like to call downloads these days, is often our brain just starting to actually function. Um, it gathers in knowledge from around us and starts to draw conclusions, especially if we develop our emotional, imaginary, intuitive sides. We actually have the capacity to figure a lot of stuff out. And it shouldn't be surprising if a lot of it then corresponds to what physics says, because we're experiencing the same nature that physics is studying, whether our experiences are spiritual, quote-unquote, or not. <laughs> Everything in this description suggests a psychedelic experience, yet nowhere in her published writings does Jane Roberts mention any instances of experimentation with LSD, mescaline, DMT, or other substances that were available and widely publicized at the time. Her official account should be compared with the notes in her unpublished journal, now at Yale University. It's also very common that channelers and people like that uh, would um, use psychedelics and not talk about it and just pawn it off as their own highly developed spirituality. That's happened a lot with channelers. I have a massive distaste for channelers, of course. Just two weeks before... On August 23, 1963, she noted that she and her husband had both become very interested in ESP and parapsychology. And for 9th September, we read only this. Strange. Try to be cautious, but seem to have hit upon a new thought system. My definition of time is original. I think we'll have a lot of work to do on it. One month later, on 10 October, she noted physical world as idea construction began today. These scanty notes seem to suggest that this manuscript was not, in fact, the result of automatic writing, but a deliberate writing project started a month after the breakthrough experience. Exactly. As suggested by the cases of Capra and Roberts, it would be naive to simply believe the authors of influential New Age publications at their word when they write such experiences happen to them just like that, especially after the start of criminalization. Hmm. I like how Hanegraaff is actually calling these people out in a way I've often tried to do and been reviled for. Yeah, heaven forbid. 
So drugs got criminalized. Spiritual people started either not talking about their use of, of entheogens or started doing it in code or pawning it off as natural channeling psychic abilities. Or some people were just wacko and making stuff up. And then there were some people actually channeling. I've done a lot of uh, automatic writing in my life. It was the base of uh, me sitting on Yeats's gravestone for hours doing that, compelled to do it. You could say in 2003, which has led to a lot of my work since then. So I'm not against that stuff. I just don't think we should publish it as a new kind of true physics that the scientific world will never understand because they're not spiritual enough. And that happens too often. It is obvious that neither they nor their publishers had anything to gain from acknowledging the role that psychoactives may have played in their spiritual development. If you wish to convince a general readership that the universe revealed its true nature to you, that you found yourself communicating with spiritual entity, uh, superior spiritual entities on other planes of reality or saw spectacular visions of the other worlds, it just does not help your credibility to tell them that it all happened while you were tripping on acid. And Honograph uses an exclamation mark. I love it. Academics never do that, or they rarely should. I think I only used one in my Wii Opus, or maybe none at all. It might have been a point of pride to never use an exclamation mark. I use them in common colloquial writing so much. It's nice to have things that I do, like ellipses in common writing, but never do in academia or in scholarship, as I prefer to call it. Nevertheless, most scholars of New Age with the notable exception of Christopher Partridge, see below, may seem to have made the same assumptions that I made in 1996. J. Gordon Melton's New Age Encyclopedia from 1990 and Christoph Bochner's 700-page monograph on the New Age, 1994, made no reference at all to drugs or psychedelics. It's because no one was doing them, of course. Paul Helis's study in, of 1996 mentioned them only in passing, and they are entirely absent from Darren Kemp and James R. Lewis's recent multi-author Handbook of New Age, 2007. In the pioneering volume, Perspectives on the New Age, edited by Melton together with James R. Lewis, only one author said at least something about it. In her research on the Ananda World Brotherhood Village, Susan Love Brown noted that many of its members had evolved from an initial use of drugs towards an emphasis on drugless techniques such as meditation. That's Susan Love Brown, Baby Boomer's American Character and the New Age. Michael York's Emerging Network, 95, emphasized the same point, quoting Marilyn Ferguson's 1980 bestseller, The annals of the Aquarian conspiracy are full of accounts of passage, LSD to Zen, LSD to India, psilocybin to psychosynthesis. A note on that, consider uh, York's The Emerging Network, and uh, where it looks at uh, the neo-pagans of Starhawk, Margaret Adler, in Adler's 1985 questionnaire among pagans, 56 respondents are quoted as responding, never, never, ever, ever use drugs. Certainly not a formulation used identically by all of them, but 76% of her sample responded that was a, it was a matter of personal choice because such substances were occasionally very valuable. And 13 respondents saw them as a powerful tool if used in a sacred context. Evincing a similar pattern, a monograph by Sarah M. Pike and an interview for the general public by Neville Drury, both 2004, referred to psychedelics only in discussing the 1960s counterculture, implying that it ceased to be a factor after that period. 
That's Pike, New Age, and Neo-Pagan Religions in America, and Drury, the New Age. That a widespread shift from drugs to meditation occurred during the 70s is not in doubt, and it is EM. My family was like that again. No drugs, just meditation, Maharishi, all the way. And it is easy to understand that for organized groups, spiritual communities, new religious movements, it became a practical necessity to regulate or prohibit drug use among their membership. However, this should not make us overlook the other side of the coin. The fact that putting on emphasis on the fact that putting an emphasis on their development from hedonistic drug use to more respectable and safe alternatives was simply quite convenient for erstwhile counterculturalists. As they were losing popular credit due to the excesses of the psychedelic era and the criminalization of psychoactives, it was their best interest, in their best interest to emphasize the pursuit of spirituality as a healthy and socially responsible way of life rather than advertise the use of drugs. As a result, we cannot determine with any degree of certainty how many of the experiences highlighted by New Age authors were in fact linked to clandestine experimentation with psychoactives. Excellent, yes. And how many of them somehow occurred spontaneously, resulted from specific drugless techniques, or were simply invented or exaggerated. This is why I like, uh, I like us magicians, because we keep diaries, and we, we, we mention how turned on we are often, or um, the weather moon cycles if we've drunk alcohol or used any drugs. We, we mention that stuff in our diary, so no matter what we have are limited to publish in the public eye, we can still note that in our private diaries, or use alchemical symbolism, right? Like it was meant to be used. That's such a, such a good point. I'm going to read it again. As a result, we cannot determine with any degree of certainty how many of the experiences highlighted by New Age authors were in fact linked to clandestine experimentation with psychoactives, and how many of them somehow occurred spontaneously, resulted from specific drugless techniques, or were simply invented or exaggerated. But absence of evidence is no evidence of absence, and the argumentum ex silencio is rightly classed among the logical fallacies. Oh, it's academic writing, so argumentum excellentio, right? It's only in ecclesiastical Latin. You would use an N-T-I into its sound. Is rightly classed among the logical fallacies. In a society where psychoactives were the talk of the town and widely available, it stretches credulity to assume that the entire 1960 generation that created the foundations of the New Age religion would suddenly have become so obedient to authority as to have stopped using them privately as a means to explore spiritual realities. My protege, of course, was a student of Honographs in Amsterdam and got stoned with him one night and performed the LBRP, and for the first time, Honograph got to see it ever by my protege. So it's almost like I got to show him that. He wasn't that impressed with the ritual work, but then again, I wasn't that impressed with my protege. Certainly not with the sexual predator he's become famous as being now. It is more reasonable to assume that while many replaced drugs by meditation, others continued using psychoactives, but just stopped talking about it. This makes it relevant to be attentive to passing hints such as this one by holistic healer William Bloom in 1993. He says, quote, At the very least, you should know about psychedelic drugs, for they are, albeit secretly, a portal of change and illumination for many people. That's Bloom, first steps. 
also see, um, he's quoted in Stephen J. Sutcliffe, Children of the New Age. In short, my suggestion is that after its sensational and exhibitionistic public phase during the 1960s, the use of psychedelics in a spiritual context evolved after 1970 into a private and discreet individualistic practice, which continued to have a considerable impact on New Age religion because of the types of religious experiences and visions that it produced or facilitated. This makes it into an aspect of esotericism, in the specific dictionary sense of secrecy and concealment, but not of the well-known discursive practice of secrecy as skilled revelation of skilled concealment, as elegantly formulated by Michael Tausig. That's Tausig, Viscerality, Faith, and Skepticism. It's an essay. Where secrets are forms of social capital that impart power to those who are in a position to hide or reveal them. Instead, we are dealing with practices of secrecy and concealment born simply out of social and legal necessity. <clears throat> the obvious difficulties of finding hard data under such conditions are not a sufficient reason to ignore this dimension of New Age for at least two reasons. First, simply by being more attentive to it, Evidence relevant to entheogenic esotericism may be noted and recognized that would otherwise be overlooked. Authors and practitioners do not make references to it, but often just in passing and by means of coded language, e.g. power plants, psychotechnologies, rather than drugs or psychedelics. Second, even where there is no strict empirical proof of entheogenic esotericism, it may still be the most plausible explanation in specific cases such as those discussed above. The assumption that spectacular experiences, as reported by Capra and Roberts, happened just like that, because we cannot think of anything better, are unsatisfactory and, in fact, rather lazy from an intellectual point of view. Until somebody comes up with a better explanation, it seems much more reasonable to attribute them, at least provisionally, to the use of substances that are known from clinical research to have exactly these kinds of effects. Entheogenic shamanism. The only scholar who has given systematic attention to the role of entheogens in what he calls contemporary occulture is Christopher Partridge. In a very well-documented overview, he distinguished between three phases in the modern spiritual psychedelic revolution. One, from Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD in 1938 to the end of the 1950s, with Aldous Huxley as the central figure. Two, the psychedelic era from the 1960s to 76, with Timothy Leary at the center. And three, the development of rave culture since the mid-1980s. That's good enough categories. You can almost make these different categories arbitrary if you actually have enough information about what was going on in the world. Publishing his book in 2005, Partridge sketched the emergence of a fourth phase dominated by cyberculture as well, while such a periodization makes perfect sense, I will be emphasizing an element of continuity from the 1960s to the present with roots in the 1950s. See, this is what I was talking about. Yeah, ah, this is when you have good scholars, they say good things and they think well. They don't simplify their their thoughts. They, yeah, we need good scholarship. Universities are not useless entirely. Go study with good academics. Get some good learning. Not for the piece of paper, but for what you fucking learn. Concerning a specific, specific current or subculture that is usually discussed in terms of neo-shamanism, uh, 
It is in this context that we find the clearest examples of what I propose to call entheogenic esotericism. Neo-shamanism has attracted much attention from scholars in recent years. But even in some of the best research, we find once again strange blind spots that have more to do with the intellectual preoccupations of academics than with the subjects they are studying. The evidence shows beyond a shred of doubt that what is now known as neo-shamanism emerged during the 1960s as a movement dominated by enthusiasm for natural psychoactives, peyote, ayahuasca, psilocybin mushrooms, and various other less well-known species. But many scholars of the phenomenon seem remarkably blind to the evidence in that regard. For example, all specialists of neo-shamanism acknowledge the books by Carlos Castaneda as a major catalyst. Kaku von Stuckrad even calls Castaneda's teachings of Don Juan the foundational document of modern Western shamanism. But amazingly, they tend to not to mention, even in passing, that this, his spectacular shamanic experiences were described in explicit detail as being induced by psychoactive power plants. I just realized power plants <laughs> also means power plants. <laughs> yeah, you could really uh, throw a few people off what you're really talking about if you just took away the space between power and plants and always called them power plants. <laughs> Confuse a bunch of people. Have a blind, have a blind out there, occultists. Yeah, no general reader of Castaneda misses this fact, and it accounts in no small measure for his best-selling success. So how could we ha it have escaped the academics? Oh, how could anything escape academics' wide view of everything, right? Similarly, the anthropologist Michael Harner is rightly highlighted as seminal to the development of neo-shamanism since the 1970s. But again, the fact that he was initiated into shamanism by drinking ayahuasca in the Ecuadorian Amazon forest and discussed it as almost inseparable from hallucinogens in his earlier work, is usually treated as irrelevant or marginal at best. Yes, of course it is. Such liberal-minded academics. Hmm. The basic flaw in these analyses of neo-shamanism is that they automatically equate the legally enforced turn away from public entheogenic practice with a freely developed preference for drugless techniques. For example, Andrei Znamensky, 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 yeah, notes that Harner purposefully, purposely moved away from replicating hallucinogenic experiences in Western settings, searching instead for alternatives by experimenting with drugless techniques from Native North American, Siberian, and Sami traditions. Strictly speaking, these statements are correct, but they failed to mention the most decisive factor, the simple fact that after 1970, Harner had no choice if he wanted to organize anything public and stay out of jail. In a very similar way, the closely related movement of transpersonal psychotherapy, pioneered by Stanislav Grof, was forced to abandon the use of LSD and develop holotropic breathing as a legal alternative. See Grof Beyond the Brain and Grof LSD Psychotherapy. In both cases, there is no reason to doubt the workshop leaders would have continued using psychedelics, albeit perhaps more cautiously and with more safeguards than during the wild 1960s, if only the law had allowed it. For these reasons, applying the post-1970 model of Harnerian core shamanism as a model for describing the nature of neo-shamanism as a historical phenomenon is anachronistic and misleading. 
It reduces the phenomenon to only its sanitized and politically correct dimension intended for the general public. Much more than as an example of the literary and popular reception of Siberian and Native American spirituality, a sophisticated etic focus congenial to academic interests and certainly fascinating in itself, but rather remote from the emic concerns of practitioners on the ground, etic is theoretical and emic is experiential, on the ground, neo-shamanism should be seen first of all as a form of modern entheogenic religion. Having been born from experimentation with natural psychoactives, entheogenic in the narrow sense, it branched off into two directions after 1970, a safe, legal, and therefore publicly visible ritual and psychotherapeutic practice, entheogenic in the wider sense, and the clandestine underground culture that continued to work with psychoactives. Yeah, there's so, so a lot of people started studying non entheogenic practices after entheogenic experiences or awakenings. And I worked with someone who I guided through uh, an experience um, with Spice in which their third eye seemed to actually be opened by the experience and someone who had had no previous real experience with lucid dreaming, um, intuitive experiences or, or visionary stuff has nonstop every night been returning to similar places that they visited in those DMT spirit realms and is constantly writing me with these very profound experiences of what you might poorly call psychical sensation of reality that are very familiar to me or anyone with a lifelong meditation or ritual practice, but were completely unknown to this person prior to, to experiences with the spirit molecule. So the fact that these things can actually work as an awakening to then pursue non-entheogenic experiences and practices is a very powerful thing. And that needs to be, I think, looked at a lot more. The main outlines of the pre-prohibition phase are reasonably clear, although more critical research from outsiders would certainly be welcome. The most crucial pioneer was the investment banker R. Gordon Wasson, who developed a fascination with the cultural significance of mushrooms since 1927 and, in the summer of 1955, participated in mushroom ceremonies with the Mexican Mezatec shamaness Maria Sabina. See, there you go. There's someone before the 50s using psilocybin. I don't know how a PhD could ever make the claim, though being deeply involved in psilocybin use, that no one did any ever use them before the 50s. Like, this is just the kind of fucking insane shit that people who should know better, claim to know better, and have ex vast experience in psychedelics still say this kind of inane garbage. I don't understand it. Then again, with what's going on in the world these days, it's don't, I don't understand much at all. Two years later, in 1957, a lavishly illustrated account of these sessions in Life magazine made Wasson and Sabina into instant celebrities. The article in question, Seeking the Magic Mushroom, inspired Timothy Leary to follow in Wasson's footsteps and travel to Mexico, where he set up the Harvard Psilocybin Project. Later in the 1960s, Maria Sabina's residence in Huatla was overrun by hippie tourists. <laughs> <laughs> A parallel and converging development emerged from William Burroughs' participation in ayahuasca ceremonies in the Amazon in 1953. See, I didn't know Burroughs did ayahuasca. This is the kind of shit they don't teach you in high school. And similar explorations by his friend, Allen Ginsberg, in 1960. I didn't know Ginsberg did that either, and I was like, I'm obsessed with Ginsberg. 
resulting in a classic in the classic of the psychedelic counterculture known as the Yage Letters. To be fair, I tend to only read the poetry these guys wrote. That's just my thing. Riding the wave of growing popular excitement about these indigenous entheogenic traditions, anthropologists like Carlos Castaneda and Michael J. Harner began exploring Mexican and Amazon traditions, and it is on the, this basis that they eventually became literary and practical founding figures of what has, was, become, was to become known as neo-shamanism. After the prohibition of psychoactive drugs, this original form of neo-shamanic practice somehow continued as an underground tradition through the 1970s and into the 1980s. How this happened exactly and on what scale, which personal networks were involved, how they developed, and how its participants communicated and exchanged information remains largely unknown at present. Since many participants and sympathizers are still alive and potentially available for interviews, one can only hope that somebody will pick up the question and try to write a history of this lineage, particularly for the period of the 1970s and early 1980s. Uh, maybe a project for someone like Bennett or Hatsis or any of these many people doing this stuff now. Lots of room for research in this area, folks. There is no doubt that with the emergence of rave culture in the, by the mid-1980s and the spread of the internet, entheogenic neo-shamanism, in the narrow sense, re-emerged in public view. It became accessible and attractive to a new generation, and because the internet makes discussion of potentially illegal practices so much safer and easier, the number of online sources relevant to entheogens and shamanism has exploded exponentially. At present, it is simply overwhelming. <laughs> And he was saying this a while ago, so today I don't know what he would say. It's, uh, uh, it may be overwhelming, but I think it's actually still insufficient. Entheogenic esotericism. In this short programmatic article, I cannot do more than try to illustrate the nature of contemporary entheogenic shamanism as exemplified by a few representative figures. Arguably, its central figurehead was the American prophet of an archaic revival, Terence McKenna. 1946 to 2000. Elsewhere, I have described how his intense entheogenic experiences in the Colombian Amazon forest in 1971, together with his brother Dennis and some friends, inspired him to develop a radical spiritual worldview that stands at the very origin of contemporary millenarian fascination with the year 2012. See, Honograph and End History. It's an article called and end history. On McKenna's worldview, see also Kripal, Esselin. In spite of its remarkable popularity, 2012 millenarian, millenarianism is another aspect of contemporary esotericism that seems to be neglected almost completely by academic research. Several books published by McKenna in the early 1990s have become classics of the new underground scene of entheogenic shamanism and McKenna himself has attained an iconic status as public intellectual in that context, in not least due to a series of audio and video recordings of his lectures that are now easily accessible online. His charismatic status rests upon the unique combination of a sharp intellect, a high level of erudition, a delightful self-relativizing sense of humor, and excellent communication skills. His books are extremely well-written, and his unmistakable nasal voice and hypnotic style of delivery has even been sampled in trance music recordings online. That's awesome. <laughs> All in the service of expounding one of the weirdest worldviews imaginable. <laughs> yeah. 
McKenna's most mature work is a 1990s upgrade of the radical countercultural ideas of the 1960s and appeals to a new generation that sympathizes with the hippie culture of that period but does not share its anti-technological bias. At the heart of this cultic milieu, we find a profound sense of cultural crisis. Western society, built upon the life-denying and totalitarian dogmatisms of traditional Christianity and materialist science, is spiritually bankrupt and heading for military and ecological disaster. Nah. In a deliberately utopian search for how humanity might find a way back to the garden, McKenna is referring first of all, to indigenous cultures that are still in touch with nature and with the archaic roots of humanity. But underneath this most immediately obvious emphasis on shamanic cultures, there is an intellectual discourse grounded in assumptions proper to Western esotericism. While references to it can be found throughout his work, this background is nowhere more explicit than in a series of unpublished lectures on alchemy delivered at Esalen, California, around 1990, available online as an unedited transcript, and all over YouTube these days, of course. I think someone just posted more to the GD forum today from the Isis Urania Temple in England. These lectures show the enormous impact of what I would like to refer to as Iranos religionism. Religionism means the exploration of historical developments in view of eternal truths or realities that transcend history and change. For an extensive discussion of religionism and its various manifestations, see Honograph's book, uh, Esotericism and the Academy, again. Characterized by evaluation of myth and symbolism over doctrine and discursive rationality, this inherently paradoxical but intellectually fascinating project was central to the famous Iranos meetings organized since 1933 in Ascona, Switzerland. And uh, largely due to the financial support of the Bollingen Foundation. It became enormously successful in the United States after World War II. Many of the central scholars associated with Iranos, notably Carl Gustav Jung, Mercha Eliada, Gershom Scholem, D.T. Suzuki, James Hillman, and Joseph Campbell, achieved an iconic status in the American popular counterculture, and their ideas have become essential to post-war understandings of esotericism. It is only since the empirical turn in the study of Western esotericism since the early 1990s that this religionist perspective has come to be perceived, at least in the academic world, as primarily an object of research, a sophisticated form of post-war esotericism, rather than as an appropriate methodology for research. And this is important in the study of esotericism uh, from a scholarly perspective, the difference between primary and secondary sources. So the methodologies that used to be used to study esotericism are now studied as esotericism. They are primary source material rather than secondary source material of scholarly work. Um, Yeah, that's a good thing to note. And that's why academics banded together to create the academic associations for studying esotericism. McKenna's understanding of alchemy and hermeticism turns out to be a typical example of Iranos religionism. And there's another element of that. You see the, the, the train of thought from the Prisky theology, the, uh, from the Neoplatonic Renaissance, Italian Renaissance as well, at play in this Iranos religionism. With Jung and Eliada as central figures, from this perspective, he was making a valiant effort to introduce his audience to Francis Yates' classic Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition, 1964. 
her ideas about the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, and even a wide collection of original Hermetic and alchemical texts, next to some of his favorite philosophers such as Plato, Plotinus, Bruno, Bergson, and Whitehead. During the course of his lectures, he read and discussed long passages from the Corpus Hermeticum, the Asclepius, and the Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum. In short, he was giving his audience a crash course in the main currents of early modern esotericism, presented as the epitome of a traditional enchanted worldview, radically different from the wasteland of modernity and contemporary society. A good example of how McKenna combined his considerable knowledge of alchemical literature with the creative form of esoteric hermeneutics is his discussion of mercury. It's interesting he uses the term esoteric hermeneutics because that would be using a lens of esotericism to perceive things esoterically rather than using a hermeneutic lens to perceive esotericism hermeneutically. Um, again, you, if you want look, to look more into methodologies of hermeneutics and interpretation, check out my book, The Ethics of Understanding God. And God is, of course, crossed out under erasure. So, quote from McKenna on Mercury. You all know what mercury looks like. At room temperature, it's a silvery liquid that flows. It's like a mirror. For the alchemists, and this is just a very short exercise in alchemical thinking, for the alchemists, mercury was mind itself, in a sense. And by tra tracing through the steps by which they reached that conclusion, you can have a taste of what alchemical thinking was about. Mercury takes the form of its container. If I pour mercury into a cup, it takes the shape of the cup. If I pour it into a test tube, it takes the shape of the test tube. This taking the shape of its container is a quality of mind, and yet here it is present in a flowing silvery metal. The other thing is mercury is a reflecting surface. You never see mercury. What you see is the world which surrounds it which is perfectly reflected in its surface like a moving mirror, you see. And then, if you've ever, as a child I mean, I have no idea how toxic this process is, but I spent a lot of time as a child hounding my grandfather for his hearing aid batteries, which I would then smash with a hammer and get the mercury out and collect it in little bottles and carry it around with me. Well, the wonderful thing about mercury is when you pour it out on the surface, it beads up, and then each bead of mercury becomes a little microcosm of the world, and yet the mercury flows back together into a unity. Well, as a child, I had not yet imbibed the assumptions of and the ontology of science. I was functioning as an alchemist. For me, mercury was this fascinating magical substance onto which I could project the contents of my mind, and a child playing with mercury is an alchemist hard at work, no doubt about it. So, methodologically, one of the things here is, I would say from my vantage in background in, in philosophy and theology, is that here, McKenna's speaking in spiritual terms. He's talking about spirituality. He's interpreting these things for spiritual purpose and using theory to inform practice, which is a process we call praxis. It's a technical term, not a fancy word for practice. And Hanegraaff, as a scholar of religion, which has a different slight methodological approach from philosophy and theology and uh, semiotics especially, is, uh, is looking at McKenna is sort of getting drawn into the thing which he's studying and then thinking about it in its own native terms rather than through the methodology of, of scientific observation. 
In this passage, it is easy to recognize a whole range of basic esoteric assumptions central to McKenna's thinking. Exactly. The interconnectedness of mind and matter, the notion of microcosm, macrocosmos, the idea of individual minds being ultimately part of a universal mind, and the idea of the human mind as the mirror of nature, and the reverse. Interestingly, he pointed out that as far as he was concerned, the occultist currents since the 19th century were of little interest, since they had already been infected by modernizing and secularizing trends. And that's actually a really good thought. There is a lot of influence in Victorian and early 20th century occultism um, from everything from Blavatsky's bullshit to um, New Thought and uh, proto-science, pseudoscience, all of these things. But that doesn't mean that the practices themselves were <laughs> not useful. Uh, there's a reason that GD training today is still the best Western magical training you can have. And that's just because it's rigorous and um, comprehensive. McKenna was pointing towards pre-enlightenment hermeticism. Exactly. Flourishing, as he emphasized, first in late antiquity and then in the Renaissance, both periods of crisis similar to our own, for models of a magical and an enchanted revival that was still in touch with the symbolic and mythopoetic thinking. Mythopoic thinking, I think that's a typo, but thinking in analogies and correspondences proper to archaic cultures. As I have explained elsewhere, it was precisely from such perspective that the counterculture had been reading Francis Yates's narrative of the Hermetic tradition. Authors like McKenna perceived it as a tradition dominated by magic, personal religious experience, and the powers of the imagination. It promoted a world-affirming mysticism consonant with the, an enchanted and holistic science that looked at nature as a living organic whole, permeated, permeated by invisible forces and energies, and it reflected a confident, optimistic, forward-looking perspective that emphasized humanity's potential to operate on the world and create a better, more harmonious, more beautiful society. To all this, McKenna added a direct avenue towards the attainment of gnosis, the use of entheogenic substances. Yeah, there's no, no one. No one doubts. Like any any solid occultist knows that McKenna had really what would be considered very basic cursory knowledge of the Hermetic tradition of the magical traditions. What's What's important, I think, Honograph is noting this here is that McKenna's gesture from these traditions to the public world is one that that made it accessible and showed a usefulness to a certain form of spirituality that embraced nature once again. And that's what I think we need to take away from McKenna that's most important, not whether how accurate he was in his understanding or the methodologies he used to understand uh, esoteric traditions in the West and East, I guess, for that matter. Few participants in the contemporary subculture of entheogenic neo-shamanism are as well read in alchemical and hermetic literature as McKenna was. That's not true. That's just because Hanegraaff doesn't actually know many occultists at all. But they do share his basic worldview. Yeah, again, all the serious occults in the world are still relatively unknown. Most people didn't know about me. Most people don't know about all the other significant ones. They, 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 pay, they will mostly hear about the hacks and the, the loudmouths who don't know shit. So that's a, that's a constant problem. It's because people who are actually practicing the things that we practice are really busy practicing. It takes a lot of time. People have no idea how much time it takes. So if we seem absent, it's because we're busy doing what we're meant to be doing and not babbling nonsense and poorly half-grasped traditions and ideas. The last thing most of us serious practitioners want is to uh, give people information that took us 
10, 15 years to gain because those people don't want to do the work for themselves. <sighs> Elsewhere, I've argued that the various currents and ideas that may be constructed as esotericism have ultimately emerged from the encounter in Western culture between biblical monotheism and Hellenistic paganism. First, they share a rejection of the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing, that is, emphasizing instead that the world is co-eternal with God. This basic principle may lead to an extreme Gnostic dualism or radical pantheism, but most commonly it has taken the shape of cosmotheism. Oh, I like that, cosmotheism. <laughs> in which the divine is present in the visible world of creation without being identical to it. Well, that's called actually panentheism. See, he doesn't... Hanegraaff, for all his knowledge, still doesn't understand the basics of uh, spiritual theology, mystical study, and these are academic subjects. I'm not talking about the practice of these things. I'm talking about the academic study of these things um, that still can be to be learned at theological colleges from serious scholars and linguists and archaeologists and all those people. So, yeah, really, there's a big divide between theological scholars and religious scholars. Religious scholars, because they ignore a whole bunch of things, end up having uh, half-baked understandings of a lot of the ideas that are gone into in extreme detail and nuance within the field themselves. But religious scholars often miss that stuff. Honograph recently in an article talks about the need, though, for maybe renaming religious studies departments as spirituality studies departments, which have existed forever in seminaries and theological colleges, not just dogmatic uh, sectarian ones, but in ecumenical scholarly ones. From this first principle, there emerged a second one, the belief that as human beings, we are able to attain direct experiential knowledge of our own divine nature. We are not dependent on God revealing himself to us, as is in classical, classic monotheism, where the creature is dependent on the creator's initiative, nor is our capacity for knowledge limited to the bodily senses and natural reason, as in science and rational philosophy. But the very nature of our souls allows us direct access to the supreme, eternal substance of being. Again, referring to any of that stuff as Gnostic in any way is, is really stupid, because it's mystical. Mystical is not a flaky, vague term. It's a very precise term that was defines what Gnosticism fails to define well, because Gnosticism is too uh, overladen with the beliefs of different Gnostic groups, especially the dual, dualism in, inherent to Gnosticism is very problematic, and one a problem that does not exist in use of the term mysticism, which simply means direct experience of divine through spirit or nature or both. Such direct experiential knowledge or gnosis is believed to be attained through ecstatic states of mind, Seen from this perspective, contemporary neo-shamanism, as represented by a central author like McKenna, is, indeed, a typical form of entheogenic esotericism in the narrow sense of the word. McKenna's archaic revival means a revival of cosmotheism, that should be panentheism, against the worldviews of classical, classic monotheism and rationalist science, and he highlights entheogenic substances as providing a direct doorway to gnosis. Yeah, again, it should be a direct doorway to mystical experience or to mysticism. Gnosis is just stupid. Not in the way that, you know, not in one way, but in another way. It's just too, it's just useless. McKenna died of brain cancer in 2000, 
I wonder if playing with Mercury throughout his childhood <laughs> had a, a detrimental effect. Yeah. I remember when my parents first told me not to handle Mercury. It seemed like a smart thing, so I never did it. But I know people used to drink it. Remarkable. But remains alive on the internet. His most prominent successor in recent years is another American, Daniel Pinchbeck, who has inherited a somewhat similar neo-shamanic worldview, including a millenarian focus on 2012. They represent two different generations, but have much in common. McKenna often contrasted his mature worldview against the intellectual despair of post-war existentialism that was dominant during his childhood. Quote, I grew up reading those people, and it made my adolescence much harder than it needed to be. I mean, my God, there wasn't an iota of hope to be found anywhere. That's why, for me, psychedelics broke over that intellectual world like a tidal wave of revelation. I quoted to you last night Jean-Paul Sartre's statement that nature is mute. Now I see this as an obscenity, almost, an intellectual crime against reason and intuition. It's the absolute antithesis of the Logos. Ooh, I don't like the fact that he uses the word Logos. And the idea that nature is mute could have many interpretations. But I see his point, and I generally like to agree with McKenna. His, his, his trajectory is good. His uh, learning was inadequate. Pinchbeck, for his part, actually converted from existentialist despair to entheogenic esotericism. The typical case of a jaded Manhattan journalist, he had fallen into a deep spiritual crisis. Wandering the streets of the East Village, I spent much, so much time contemplating the meaninglessness of existence that I sometimes felt like a ghost. Perhaps I am already dead, I thought to myself. He experimented with psychedelics, but without much result, until he made the radical step of traveling to the African country, Gabon, to participate in a ritual with the Bwiti people, who used a famous psychoactive substance known as Iboga. This was the beginning of what he describes in his Breaking Open the Head, 2002, as an initiation into shamanism that cured him of existential ennui and despair. Pinchbeck now stands at the center of a new movement that has been referred to by various terms, including cyber-spirituality, techno-shamanism, or New Edge, <laughs> as explained by Dorian Zandbergen in a recent analysis. Quote, the rise and popularization of digital technologies such as virtual reality and the internet in the 1990s was accompanied by the hopeful expectation of spiritual seekers that these would make permanently available the utopian worlds and the altered states of consciousness sought after by a previous generation of hippies. Because of the supposed inherent disembodied nature of cyberspace, some scholars argued in the 1990s that cyberspace has become the new platonic, the platonic new home for the mind and the heart, a new Jerusalem or a paradise. Yeah, well, they didn't see social media, did they? <laughs> in the decade after 9-11, now we're getting into it, the high-tech hippie utopianism of this new edge movement visible not just as an online community, but also in very popular annual festivals such as Burning Man in Nevada's Black Rock Desert, has taken on progressively darker and apocalyptic shades. In its stronger versions, global capitalist consumer society is perceived as a huge impersonal demonic system of dominance and control, with politicians and the media hypnotizing the population into tacit submission and enslavement to the Matrix. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, Project Mockingbird is real, right? In that context, Native American cultures and their shamanic 
spirituality are seen as preservers of a traditional wisdom that Western society has tragically lost. Yeah, I totally agree with that. They belong to the forces of light set against the powers of darkness that seek to enslave and dominate the planet. Well, I mean, was it the Mayans who were drinking human blood and probably started the whole Hollywood baby blood craze? Maybe. So, I mean, those ancient cultures did some nasty shit as well, right? Entheogenic sacraments are credited with the capacity of breaking mainstream society's spell of mental domination and restoring us from blind and passive consumers unconsciously manipulated by the system to our original state of free and autonomous spiritual beings. Quite like Morpheus's blue pill in the Matrix, they open participants' eyes, causing them to wake up to the true nature of the collective deception passed on us as reality, the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. And I think he meant red pill, not blue pill there, but we'll forgive an academic for not being up to date on his matrix theology. <laughs> Who knows? I'm not sure. And introduce them to a wider meaningful universe of spiritual truth, love, and light. In short, they are seen as providing gnosis in a Gnostic dualistic rather than a hermetic sense, a salvational knowledge, see he says salvational, the word is soteriological knowledge, of the true nature of oneself and of the universe, which does not op just open the individual spiritual eyes, but liberates him from dominion by the cosmic system. That's exactly what psychedelics and spirituality can do for you. All this academic stuff is one way of going the long route to say that, but he does uncover in this, in this essay, as we get to the end now, um, the obfuscations that existed after the illegalization of drugs. Um, I know I took some critical issues with the style and mode of his conveyance of these ideas, especially the lack of uh, familiarity. To be a scholar of religion and to not understand theology on its own ground is, to me, problematic inherently. Could you imagine someone being a scientist, but all they do is study scientists, but they don't know the science that the scientists are studying? That's what it sounds like when I read Scholars of Religion. So as much as I do love Hanegraaff and a lot of Scholars of Religion, they often fail. Like, he has to make up a word, salvational, because he doesn't know, the, or he maybe he's thinking of his readers, doesn't want to use soteriological. But using correct terms is helpful. I mean, using the word Gnostic when we mean mystic is, is not helpful. Salvational instead of soteriological, I can see the pragmatic value of that here, but it doesn't help anyone to dumb ourselves down for the sake of being uh, less challenging to human beings' minds. We should be more challenging to each other's minds, not less. Concluding remarks. It is, of course, impossible to predict how these contemporary manifestations of entheogenic esotericism will develop in the future, but that they already represent a significant phenomenon in contemporary culture is clear, and scholars of religion have an obligation to study them closely and find ways to place them in their proper historical, social, and cultural contexts. That reminds me of a point where he, he's mentioning scholars of religion because they do see themselves as far superior to theologians or uh, philosophical scholars in many ways. They see themselves more like historians, but they're often historians who don't understand the actual practices of their, that which they study. Um, and that's problematic methodologically. So I really like Eric Weinstein's point that the polymaths need to come back. And Honograph, in his recent article on religion, which I did already cover, which is from 2020 in the magazine Religion, um, talks about the need to revise uh, the, re 
religious studies departments and studies of religion in general. So he's come a long ways, as we all do. We all change, and I'm sure I'll have different opinions in the future as well. New information does that when you have an open and critical mind. Hmm. The gist of this was is that in order to do so, scholars will need to take the phenomenon of entheogenic religion much more seriously than they have been doing so far. Amen. Whether we like it or not, we are dealing here with a vital and vibrant dimension of popular Western spirituality that has been with us for more than half a century now, if not for thousands of years, motherfuckers, and shows no signs of disappearing. It challenges traditional assumptions about what religion is all about, and its radical focus on ecstatic gnosis, again, stupid use of the word, ecstatic mysticism, ecstatic spirituality, much better, within a cosmotheistic, he means panentheistic, but doesn't know the word, maybe. <laughs> I'm joking. He knows the word. He's just speaking to his audience, unfortunately. Context makes it particularly interesting from the perspective of the study of Western esotericism. Specialists in the field of contemporary religion should become aware of their inherited blind spots regarding the role of that entheogens have been playing in these contexts for half a century. That role is not marginal, but central, and requires serious study. Scholars may have agendas and preoccupations of their own, but these cannot be an excuse for refusing to take notice of what is happening right in front of our eyes. Wunderbar. That is wonderful. I love that. It's a great essay. And Hanegraaff's a great scholar. We owe so much to him in the esoteric communities that we don't even realize. Um, if you haven't read Hanegraaff, if you haven't read Antoine Fevre, if you ha- don't read Moshe Adel or, or Elliot Wolfson in Kabbalah, if you don't read these people... Um, if you're you're missing out on the bulk of scholarship in the occult fields, whether it's within the subject itself or of the subject itself, you need both if you want to have a healthy um, intellectual as well as spiritual understanding of the things we are and are doing. Yay! Anyway, it's another sunny day here in California. I'm sorry I've been AWOL for so long and not even responding to anything at all anywhere. That is only due to severe... Um, violence, break-ins, and attempts to make my life end prematurely. So have a nice day. Stay safe. Also, if you're interested, I'll be releasing the entire contents with commentary of my 0 equals 0 neophyte journal from 1996-97 over the next 30 days on Patreon forward slash hermetic or the golden dawn of which i am unaffiliated but simply trained in my background if you want to donate to me go to hermetic spiritual direction.com top left corner donate button cheers hermetic science enterprises is a publishing company based in scotland uk that specializes in western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with 
the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.